Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Carnegie. Women on the Line recognizes that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. For this week's episode, we hear from Lebanese-Syrian author and academic Ruby Hamad. Ruby's best-selling debut book, White Tears, Brown Scars, traces the role that white womanhood and feminism have played in the development of Western power structures. Today, I'll be speaking with Ruby about the foundations of the historical dehumanization of Arabs and Muslims in the West, how this has impacted the world's view of Israel's ongoing occupation and genocide in Palestine, and the tools of white supremacist power structures that are still in place. Welcome to Women on the Line, Ruby. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I thought we could start with just talking a little bit about your book, White Tears, Brown Scars, in which uh, you examine the intentionally negative and one-dimensional portrayal of both Arabs and Muslims in the West. I was hoping you could talk to us about how these stereotypes were created and how they benefit white supremacist structures. Yeah, so these, when it comes to Middle Eastern people, um, Arabs in particular, these stereotypes go back many centuries. So the, yeah, Edward Said, um, the Palestinian American academic in Orientalism, gives an account of the interactions between Europe and the Middle East, which at that point, um, you know, it was called the Near East. And these uh, interactions uh, compelled a representation of that part of the world that had more to do with the people constructing that representation, i.e. the Europeans, than it did with the people of the Middle East. So the it was a very sort of self-serving representation in which the Middle East was constructed as everything that the West was not, by which um, I mean, or by which Edward Said meant that it was constructed in very negative terms as being barbaric, as being in infantile, uh, emotional, unintelligent, and uncivilized, i.e. everything that the West was not, and unpeaceful as well. And this sort of self-serving construction was repeated in all manner of, you know, texts, artworks, music, and travel, you know, travel writing. And it just became solidified. Sayed describes it as a, like a, a almost like a, a, a theatre uh, in which what plays out is what the what Europe sees and uh, not what is actually there. So that's that's where it started. And it's probably important, well, it is important to state it, it is a form of racism, but at that point, uh, you know, so this is, we're going back to like pre-colonialism, uh, pre-European colonialism. So at that point, it was more of considered like a cultural lack that the Middle East had as opposed to what we consider race per se now, which is tied to this idea of, of biology and inferior biology. It was very much considered a cultural and religious lack, 
right? So the the sort of the spectre of, of Islam that Europe had and very negative view filtered into their perception of the people that practiced Islam and that, and that spoke the language of Islam. Yeah, I think that one of the big things of white supremacist structures is this construction of some sort of binary wherever possible where you know you position the east versus the west one is civilized one is barbaric and this is something you explore of course uh, pretty in depth in your book mm -hmm. uh, you know can you talk a bit more about this and how this upholds these structures even today yes yeah, so that what I just described in Edward Sayer's work is the, the 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 foundation of the stereotypical and negative attitudes that the West more broadly now has towards the Middle East and towards Arabs in particular. What I discuss in my book um, with a focus on women but extending beyond women because uh, you know women are part of the society and um, that we don't exist separately too and as you said, it's it's about binary. So in the same way that the, the East, uh, by which I mean in this context, the Middle East uh, is was the constructed as the binary opposite of the civilized, peaceful, moral West or Europe. Women, uh, the status of women or the perception, the European perception of Arab women, Middle Eastern women, uh, was drawn from that. How I frame it in my book is there there are two time periods that influenced uh, or that shaped Western perceptions of Arab women. And these time periods are the, oh, actually women of colour more broadly, but we'll, we'll stick to Arab women for now. The, the period of sort of territorial expansion and acquisition where colonialism was in its earlier phases, where there, you know, invading and seizing territory and so at this at this point I uh, was the was when the construction of women of color of Arab women as being quite permissive promiscuous um, easy and when you look at that it corresponds to this fantasy that the whole world was opening itself up um, I'm using that imagery deliberately they're opening itself up for the West to come and take it. And so that was then reflected in this perception of women as being animalistic in their lust. And so that was the that sort of the first, you know, few centuries or couple of centuries of Western or European colonialism. And so these are the sort of the, the permissive, promiscuous stereotypes. Then after colonialism was consolidated and the colonized began to be more organized in how they resisted. So, and that included the use of violent resistance. That's what, they, when the stereotypes and archetypes of violent Arabs, including violent Arab women, bad Arab women, uh, terroristic, um, again, irrationally angry, brainless so if you look at these and so I'm talking about stereotypes like the you know the the angry brown woman and the angry black woman the bad Arab versus you know the the oriental harem girl right versus the 
you know, the Pocahontas ideal in, in the Americas versus the Jezebel during slavery. So these very different archetypes, both demeaning, both dehumanizing, but serving a different function. The earlier one was the function, the function of consoling almost or, or justifying for, to the European mind, to the Western mind, that what they were what they were doing in expanding their territory and colonizing the world was actually in the best interests and was actually accepted and wanted by these inferior races who wanted the superior West to overtake them. And then the other stereotypes, the angry, violent stereotypes, were used to rationalize the resistance to colonialism as not coming from political resistance and and the desire for liberation and freedom but just coming from this irrationally angry state that these inferior races had yeah absolutely and i don't think there's a single brown or black woman living in the west anywhere who wouldn't at some level um understand the angry brown woman stereotype in particular in the workplace I mean you do give examples in your book as well of lots of different women but particularly Palestinian women who live in America who talk about either being fetishized or disregarded and feel that you know there's no space for them in their society and I guess this is a you know an ongoing example of this these structures that were created Yes, yeah, so these, I mean, absolutely, these, so these structures were created and consolidated over many centuries. And what's happening now, particularly with Arabs and even particularly with Palestinians within Arabs, is they exist at this, this juncture of not just racism and Orientalism, but Western, i.e. US political, geopolitical interests. So it, it is in the interest of the US, the state, I mean, the US administrations to perpetuate these negative perceptions and stereotypes of Arabs because it works to justify their incursions and their presence in the region. So we see, and I discuss this, this, or I touch it on it in my book, even though with other the representations of other people of colour, and I'm not at this point at any way saying suggesting that racism for everybody else has been solved, far from it. But the the initiatives, particularly in Hollywood, in pop culture, to represent people of colour in a uh, more flattering or even just a more humanised way is uh, a lot more perceptible than it is when it comes to Arabs who continue to be either represented very negatively or else just not represented at all. So when the only um, representation that you have of a whole entire group of people, particularly a group of people like Arabs who, you know, the the interactions go back for so long, um, then when they're either negative or they don't exist, then there's nothing positive or even neutral for, you know, your average Western person, your average American or Australian to when they watch the news and when they see the way in which or hear the way in which politicians are speaking about Palestinians, there's nothing against which to counteract that. This is why. So when when you know a, a white man in America will 
open fire on a school and shoot children. There are so many other constructions of white malehood, um, i.e. the people that, the young men that we know, that we see on TV and, and represented in the media in other ways, that can counteract that construction and it's because they can counteract it your mind will say okay well we know that not all white men are like that right there's nothing to fall back on or almost nothing unless you happen to know Arab people and a lot of people just don't or they may only just know them quite um you know from a distance so when there's nothing to counteract that and there's just negative image after negative image then you're going to believe it's it's not surprising that people accept what then the media narrative and the political narrative and that's that unfortunately is what is driving a lot of the way in which um palestinians in particular represented unfortunately for palestinians because um israel is such a close ally of the us and the us wants to have a Western country and for all intents and purposes, Israel is a Western country, a very consciously Western country as well. And, and you hear it in their discourse. Um, then America is not going to want to let go of this foothold that it has in the Middle East. And in order to maintain that foothold, it has to prevent widespread sympathy for Palestinians. And that is what has been happening for all these decades. And that has been, um, muted or, or counteracted somewhat in the, or quite a lot actually, in this latest, um, I wouldn't say in this latest conflict, but in this la latest iteration of the ongoing occupation of Palestine, where um, the proliferation of images on social media, I think, has taken the US administration and the Israeli administration as well of Netanyahu by surprise, this out pouring of sympathy for Palestinians that, that is drawn primarily from the images of Palestinians on the ground in Gaza, and, but also, amazingly, of young people on TikTok who are quite incredible in dissecting what is happening and just not buying this dominant narrative and also being able to, in you know, two short two, three-minute clips, inject history which is something that the media uh, uh, hasn't done. When I say the media, the, the the legacy media, what we refer to as the mainstream media, the, you know, the big mastheads, haven't injected context, historical context, into their coverage. And this has been, uh, you know, someone I research media in, in, in my, for my PhD degree, and I did it for my master's degree, and what comes up, uh, time and time again in this in the academic research on Israel, how the you know the Western media coverage covers um, Israel and Palestine is that viewers or readers, news media consumers are not being given enough information to actually adequately process what they're seeing when they see news stories about Palestine that it perpetuates this narrative again of the angry Arab, irrational, barbaric, that is for no reason attacking this poor little brave civilised Western country in, the, in their midst. Um, but what researchers will always say, and I'll particularly point to the work of the Glasgow Media Group here in the UK, who have done amazing studies, primarily 
call uh, the the main one being um, bad news from Israel. Because what what they do is, I should explain, content studies. So they'll analyze the coverage of where which where if there's any bias exhibited, which way it slants. Um, and then they'll also do audience studies where they'll get the audience to watch the coverage and get their views on, on how they perceived or, or how they interpreted the coverage. And what they have found time and time again is that initially audiences would be not receptive to the Palestinian perspective because of what they're seeing, but then once they're given more historical context, they're perspective flips it completely flips and they're like oh so so for example a lot, a lot of you know in their, in their in their audience studies they found that audiences this is uk audiences didn't understand what the term occupied meant they thought that it just meant someone was living there so when they heard occupied territories they just heard oh yeah people live in these territories they didn't weren't comprehending because they weren't given the information that this is a military occupation which is obviously an oppressive um, regime to live under and that some of them also assume just because the the, the uh, coverage of Arabs and Palestinians is so negative just made an immediate assumption that it was actually Palestinians that were occupying Israelis um, and but uh, much of the time their perspective will flip and they'll think oh okay because they'll be like well okay if this was me then I would want to fight back I would want to resist On community radio across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You've been listening to author Ruby Hamad talk to us about the historic dehumanization of Arabs and Muslims in the West. We now return to the second part of my conversation with Ruby, which focuses on combating negative stereotypes in media through on-the-ground journalism in Palestine, gaslighting as a tool of white supremacy, and how we can make a difference. You know, there's two interesting points in what you've just said. One is that I think this is the first war of this scale that we are seeing um, from the ground on social media when America waged all those wars in the 2000s. We didn't have this kind of access to the actual um, on the ground journalists, to what's actually going on. Whereas, you know, we're hearing from these incredible journalists like Bissan and Plestian, where able to see what's happening and so people are able to you know have critical thought um whereas i think in previous um such wars these governments and these people in power relied on us believing their narrative a lot more which is not happening and i think and i i'm seeing a little bit of confusion on their end about that and the other thing is that their reliance on gaslighting which is another thing you do talk about in your book where the oppressor literally positions themselves as the victim, which can't work in this current day and age because we can see the reality. It's amazing, isn't it? It's like we're, we're watching two realities almost and it's I get the sense of that 
yeah, like you said, this this the surprise and the bewilderment on the part of the political class that it's not so easy to sell that narrative anymore because we're we're, we're because we now have something to measure it against or to put it against, and that we're we're seeing these images coming out constant stream 24 7 like we're watching them you know I don't know about you but many of us the first thing we see when we wake up and the last thing we look at when we go to sleep this these images coming out and as well as the the scale of the destruction and the overwhelmingly civilian casualties as well as the response of the way in which the Palestinian civilians are responding the the very and it's horrible to say it, but the, the very humanizing way, and, and I say it's horrible to say it because they're already human, but the way they've been perceived and constructed is not human. So when audiences on mass get to actually see the way in which their Palestinians are banding together, you know, digging people out of the rubble with their bare hands, the, the celebrations, the mini celebrations when they find someone still alive, the way in which they console each other um, amidst their loss is the most powerful counter sort of discourse, the most powerful counter representation to the way in which they're still discussed in the official political rhetoric and in the media discourse and that's why it's this very bizarre cognitive dissonance where the media and um you know the legacy media and political classes have still not quite responded to the changing reality that we can see now that it's that count it's that double whammy I call it the double whammy of those amazing journalists on the ground in Gaza coupled with the way in which social media is being utilised in a very specific way to inject that missing context. So if you've got the the current context that these journalists are giving us, like, as you said, Plestia and Bissan and Motaz, so this current um, context that they're giving us 24-7, and then regular people, regular users on TikTok that have made the most of the fact that all this information and history is at our fingertips now and looked it up, and then just began injecting that into the daily content that they're making. So now we have the current context, which goes against the official narrative in that it's very clearly civilians being targeted. It's very clearly civilians being collectively punished. And you have regular people doing the job that legacy media has thus far refused or been unable to do, and that's give us the, the history of the context and, and the history of why Palestinians are resisting, what exactly it is that they're resisting, and that this didn't actually start on October 7. Like, it, it, it's been um, said or it's been, you know, that's, that's sort of the official narrative is this all began when Hamas attacked. Uh, so you, you have this, and um, at, at the moment, at least the, you know, the media and the, the politicians in particular, administrations are quite, I think, blindsided. It remains to be seen how they will then mount their sort of take back and the backlash because they will obviously regroup. Yeah, that's what happens with power. It does regroup. And, yeah, I think it's very critical that we, we as in people who see 
the the reality that this is a resistance against occupation, regardless of what you think of individual tactics or strategies, and that the bigger, broader picture is Palestinian resistance that we keep going to reach a real tipping point, a real critical mass that the backlash won't be able to undo. Where do you see this going? Do you think that the powers that be will listen to the people who are marching weekly, doing sit-ins, doing, you know, every possible action, school children are out there? Yeah, what are your thoughts on what, what happens from here? I think any change that may come in policy will have to be forced about by the civil disobedience that we're seeing and more of it to to the point where, um, you know, almost political suicide to continue to support the oppression of Palestinians. And I don't I, we are far off that. And I, and I think there is an assumption because this is what has happened in the past as well that we'll just forget. But I think one of the ways in which if we do want to affect a change in policy, our dissent and our revulsion and our anger at what's happening in Gaza, you know, for it to, to turn into political change, we, we have to come good on the refusal to vote for the people that orchestrated that. You know, by coming good on that promise to not vote for the architects of that destruction is the only way in which it may be to force a political and policy change. Imperialism is just so deeply embedded in the American political system. So I don't know. I, I'm. This is a long way of me saying I'm kind of watching on the edge of my seat. I do think that if we maintain or if if the protesters and the actions, not just the big protests, but the, the civil disobedience, the disruptions, if that is maintained, it could eventually become, in the same way that the Vietnam War became, became poisonous, right, for US political parties and politicians because it was just so deeply unpopular. That took several years, though, and Gaza doesn't have years. So it's uh, it's uh, I can't say I'm all that optimistic that I think they're going to stop when Israel wants to stop. What we can do is we also have to have a a long term vision and understand that this is a marathon and that this awakening that so many people have had can't be allowed to die down. You just heard from author and academic Ruby Hamad on how white colonial structures and constructs impact the ongoing Israeli occupation in Palestine. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au slash womenontheline. I'm Kanagi. Tune into Women on the Line next week on your community radio station.